God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The giving of Christmas gifts is a fitting response to the receiving of such a gift, which is why R.C. Sproul said, sure, Christmas is a time of commerce. The department stores are decorated to the hilt. We tick off the number of shopping days until Christmas. But why all the commerce? The high degree of commerce at Christmas is driven by one thing, the buying of gifts for others. To present our friends and family with gifts is not an ugly, ignoble advice. It incarnates the spirit of Christmas. The tradition rests ultimately on the supreme gift God has given the world. So there's still something special about a holiday centered on giving other people gifts. So what better time than now to remind ourselves of the supreme gift in Matthew chapter 1. Please open your Bible there and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here in the following 17 verses, we have the family tree of Jesus Christ, what's called a genealogy. You know what a genealogy is, right? It's a long list of unpronounceable names. (laughs) And I will never forget when my kids in high school were asked to develop a family tree, and I could be of only limited assistance because while I knew my grandparents, I didn't know their parents. And as for those who went before them, I knew hardly anything at all. All those people, just three generations back now, beginning to recede into the mists of history, but not for first century Jews. No, for them, these kinds of lists mattered. They mattered for marriage and priesthood and inheritance and land. Jewish historian Josephus said official records like these were still being kept in Jerusalem in the first century. So this genealogy, verses 1 through 17, may seem tedious to you and me, but I guarantee you for the first century readers of this gospel, they would have been sitting on the edge of their seats. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab the father of Nation. And Nation the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. 
and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Christmas story doesn't really begin in Bethlehem. It actually reaches back considerably earlier, as John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was with God in the beginning. So from before creation, God chose a people for Himself to reconcile them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But all of this would play out on the stage of human history in a particular Jewish chronicle, and that is where Matthew comes in. So the connection between John and Matthew. So here, verse 1, is what's called a book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the word in the original. We translate it a book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, where else in the Bible do we see that phrase? A book of the genealogy. Well, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Keep your finger in Matthew 1 and Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, and look at verse 4. Genesis 2, verse 4. Everybody got that? Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations, literally, the book of the generation of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so he continues with a creation of the world. And then look at chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. 
And then what follows here is the first family tree of ten generations from Adam to Noah. And these are the only times that we see that phrase, the book of the generations, the book of the genealogy in the Old Testament. So what is Matthew doing here? Matthew is intentionally reaching back to early Genesis, but why is he doing it? Well, Matthew is describing a new creation which has burst forth, a dawning in the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as John's gospel does, cluing us off by beginning with in the beginning. And so here we have a new genesis, a restart of a new creation. And friends, I tell you, it is no coincidence that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, as each of the four Gospels emphasizes. And this is why, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have met on the first day, the Lord's Day. You know, long before there was a thing called the weekend, the New Testament church met on Sundays as best they could. Think of Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Why did they do that? Well, they did it to commemorate a restart of the new creation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the point is not lost on us elders as we consider this change in the weekend here in Dubai and how this is going to affect us as a church. And we have been talking to many of you and will continue doing so, seeking information, learning as best we can how this is going to affect us as a church. But we are excited about the possibility of reverting to the biblical pattern of Lord's Day worship. And one reason why is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. So, the unique entrance of Jesus into the world, it wasn't just a random miracle, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It was the unfolding plan of God reaching all the way to the very beginning of Israel and even further. So Christmas was not God's plan B. To the contrary, it was carefully predicted in such a way that there could be no mistaking it, no missing it. So verse 1 is a summary of the whole story of the Bible up until now. Think of that. Do you want to see a, a compressed summary of the entire Old Testament? Just look at verse 1. Did you fall behind in your Bible reading plan last year? Just read verse 1, and you can catch up and have a fresh start beginning January 1. Notice verse 1. Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three mountain peaks of revelation. Abraham, David, and the Christ. Those are the three points of the sermon this morning. First, Abraham, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. You know, from the very first book of the Bible, drama is beginning to build, because God created a perfect world, but then humans 
asserted their independence. They revolted against God. Adam and Eve promptly exiled from the presence of God. The world was cursed. It took, what, only a generation for the first murder to be committed? And then the men of Babel began that colossal building project, complete with their own Burj Khalifa, reaching to the heavens, making a name for themselves, and God responded in judgment, confusing their languages, thwarting their conspiracy. But amid all the chaos, amid all the judgment, God made a new start in this individual Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you, of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so history was headed somewhere. And from that one man, God was promising to make a new humanity and to bless him with offspring and a promised land and a great name. And God chose this family of Abraham, not because they were deserving of it, but simply because of his sovereign good pleasure. And God promised that one particular descendant of Abraham would deliver the world. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the goal of history was the arrival of a Savior onto the platform of human history who would somehow come from Abraham himself. But as we keep reading in Genesis, it wasn't Jacob or Isaac or Judah or any of the others. In fact, many of these were of questionable character. Abraham had issues. Jacob was a deceiver. One of his sons, Judah, received an extraordinary promise that from his tribe would arise a future king whose reign would last forever. His scepter shall not depart from Judah. And yet, there was this scandal between Judah and a woman named Tamar, verse 3. Do you see that? Matthew 1, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite woman the first actually of five mothers in this genealogy. And she tricked Judah, her father-in-law, into impregnating her so that she could bear children for the family line since Judah's sons had failed to do so. And here's how she did it. Tamar actually disguised herself as a temple prostitute and along came her father-in-law whose wife had recently died and after an illicit encounter with him, she got pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah. All right there in the very line of Jesus. And then interestingly in verse 5, there was another Canaanite woman. This one named Rahab. Now, she not only posed as a prostitute, she was a prostitute. She ran a brothel in Jericho. 
you know, around the time that Joshua's army was approaching and circling, coming in to take the land, and Jewish spies had been sent in, scouting out the promised land. Well, they had to hide in Rahab's brothel, and amazingly, she took them in. And a knock came at the door. It was the Jericho police. Have you seen any spies? And she could give them up, or she could risk everything. And astonishingly, she renounced her former way of life, hid the spies, and was adopted into the family of God by faith, becoming the mother of Boaz. And then there's a third non-Jewish woman in the genealogy. Her name is Ruth. She was a Moabitess who beautifully clung to her Jewish mother-in-law, saying, your people will be my people and your God will be my God, and she too was brought into the family. And so there it is, 14 generations from Abraham down to Jesse, the father of David. But for all of them, they were looking forward to that promised offspring of Abraham. As Hebrews 11 tells us, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So all of these Old Testament saints were straining forward, looking ahead, waiting for the promised son of Abraham. And who shows up next? Secondly, David, the greatest of the kings of Israel. David defeated their enemies. He united their nation about a thousand years before Jesus Christ, and he consolidated power there in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the passage of Scripture that Scott read for us earlier from 2 Samuel, where David told God he wanted to build God a house, a temple. But God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. That is a dynasty. It was a wordplay. Because the word house can mean either dwelling or it can mean empire or dynasty, kind of like the, uh, the house of Saud or the house of Windsor. Just like God promised to make Abraham's name great, so he promised to make David's name great. And he did this through his son Solomon, who did in time build a house for God. Solomon presided over the fullest flowering of Old Testament Israel. We read that silver was as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as the sycamore fig trees in the foothills. But in the end, Solomon fell short, just like his father. Look at verse 6. Matthew 1, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon. Notice how. By the wife of Uriah, her name is not even mentioned Maybe because of the scandal of the adultery. Maybe it was to underscore David's cover-up murder of her husband, Uriah, who was a Hittite, a non-Jew. And Solomon as well, we're told, loved many foreign women and was led astray. And as the generations that followed continued, they brought division and decline as king after king fell short of the mark. And the rest of the Old Testament is the account of the sad decline 
ultimately losing their place, their temple, their freedom. You know, it's interesting. As the kings went, so went the whole nation. And as long as the one sitting on the throne was a sinner, God's people could never be secure. With flawed kings like these, the kingdom would totter. And verse 11 describes the major collapse. Look at verse 11. The time of the deportation to Babylon. Siege and suffering, military defeat and death. And yet, God had promised that from David would come a king whose throne would somehow be established forever. And long after David died, there was this expectation of a new David who would come. Just as Isaiah had predicted earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So God was saying not merely that he would send Israel a king, but that he was going to come and be their king personally. And yet all these prophets died. They all fell off the scene hoping and waiting. And so the Old Testament comes to an end, not so much with a bang, as with a whimper. This ragtag remnant returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, but the former glory of the temple was never recovered. And as the Old Testament draws to a close, the last king, interestingly, is still there in Babylon. Jeconiah is his name a.k.a. Jehoiakim. But at the very end of the book of Kings, he's released from prison, and he's allowed to remove his, his prison clothes, and is permitted to eat at the king's table. There in Babylon, all the rest of his days. And so the book of Kings ends on a tantalizing note. Is there still hope for the line of David? Which brings us thirdly to the Christ. So Abraham, David, the Christ. Now that word Christ, also translated as Messiah, Christos is the Greek form, Mashiach is the Hebrew, Christ, Messiah, it means anointed one, anointed with oil. In the Old Testament there were many messiahs, many anointed ones, kings and prophets and priests of one kind or another. The anointing symbolized God's presence, His empowerment to do some task or another. But all the while, there was a promise of another anointed one with a capital A, the anointed one, the one who would eclipse all of the others and who would bring in God's kingdom. Now, look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, verse 12, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. You know, I spend time with lots of Christian families, but I never hear of families who name their son Zerubbabel. <laughs> Zerubbabel was not a king, but he was a governor under the patronage of Persia. So the towering tree of the Davidic monarchy had now become a single solitary stump cut off, lifeless. 
But what had Isaiah promised? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So an anticipation of a coming Savior. Now, verses 13 to 16 are the final lead-up to Christ. And the remaining names in these verses are unknown to us. So from Abiud, verse 13, down to Jacob, verse 16, probably these names came from official genealogical records. Until we get to Joseph in verse 16, and notice the care, the precision, with which he's described. Verse 16, as the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So Mary was the mother, but Joseph's paternity is stated in a legal formula as the adoptive father, not the biological one. And so like all the other mothers in Jesus' genealogy, Mary too labored under a cloud of suspicion as we'll consider more next week. Then look at the last verse. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. <clears throat> Friends, what is the point of all this? <clears throat> Why would we walk through all of these names? Well, the point of the genealogy is to prove, it is to establish, verse 1 that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. <clears throat> so this genealogy is to establish the credentials, the pedigree of the one, verse 16, who is called Christ. So Matthew is saying, here is the new book of the Genesis. Here, my friends, is the new beginning. And so as we wrap up, what does this mean? For you and me in the 21st century. Well, I thought about it, and we could spend a series of weeks considering the applications for us, but I'll limit myself to two, only two. Number one, what this genealogy teaches us is this. Jesus is a Savior for people like us. Jesus is a Savior for people like us. Can you believe the scandal in the family line of Jesus. The skeletons in this family closet. I mean, there is David, a great king to be sure, but also an adulterer and a cover-up murderer. Or there's Manasseh in verse 10, who sacrificed his own sons in the flames of fire to a pagan god, although later he repented. Or how about the women on the list? You know, ancient genealogies were almost always comprised of men. The father of this person. The father of that person. Matthew purposely includes five mothers in the list. And it's not the ones we would expect, is it? It's not the famous matriarchs of Israel. But rather, he selected deeply compromised women. Those who, some of them, had rough sexual pasts. There is Tamar, verse 3, who bore a son by her father-in-law, posing as a cult prostitute. Or Rahab, verse 5, a Canaanite who ran a brothel in Jericho. Or Ruth, 
the Moabite. Now, given the way Ruth proposed marriage to Boaz, it may be the case that there was a cloud of suspicion around her. Or think of Bathsheba, the adulterous wife of a Hittite. Now, whether these women were complicit in their sins or were the victims of abuse, I mean, we can't unpack all of that now, but Patrick Schreiner observed, readers might be surprised to discover that an ancient genealogy has much to say to a Me Too generation. Friends, even their very ethnicities were scandalous. Canaanite, Moabite, Hittite, these were the very nations that Israel had been warned not to marry because they would be led astray to foreign gods. And that David's own grandmother was a non-Jew was unthinkable. Even Jesus' own mother had a cloud of suspicion. You know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of immaculate conception, meaning not the immaculate conception of Christ, but the immaculate conception of Mary. They maintain, apart from any evidence, that Mary was immaculately conceived and was herself sinless. Now, why would they want to do that? Is it not to establish a pure lineage to Jesus Christ? But not Matthew. You see, Jesus is not afraid to be identified with people who have lived scandalous lives. Liars, cheaters, cowards, idolaters, adulterers, pagans, and prostitutes. It's like somebody said this week on Twitter, the family Jesus came from reflects the family he came for. Well, maybe you are like some of the people in this genealogy. Maybe you have a history that is shameful and sad and that was the result of poor decisions or rebellious desires or both. Maybe you resemble Tamar or Rahab or David. Or maybe you're more like Manasseh or Solomon. You've harmed other people by your deeds and perhaps even now you begin to feel the weight of your guilt for how you have lived. Friends, if this describes you, never forget that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. The family he came from reflects the family he came for. Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you see God's unstoppable purposes coursing through history in this genealogy? Friends, not even our own sin can block God's sovereign purposes for us because there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. The Apostle Paul said, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And so if you are here today stained by your past, then you should take heart. No need to be paralyzed. Simply turn to Christ. Trust in Him and you'll be saved. And not only will Jesus save you, but then the grace of Christ will begin to transform you 
and he will begin to use you for his purposes and for his glory. You see, Jesus is a savior for people like us. And just one final thing. Jesus proves that God is faithful. Jesus proves that God is faithful, that what he promises, he actually does. And here's what I mean by that. You know, Matthew's gospel doesn't begin with the words, once upon a time. There's nothing in this family tree that suggests that we're not dealing with accurate history. I guarantee you, most governments today would censor this right out of the public records. But this doesn't read like promotional literature for a new upstart religion. I mean, the genealogy, when you read it, doesn't feel like marketing material. It feels like actual history, the real account of God's dealings with the world and humanity, which is why I think this recent book by Peter Williams is so incredibly important for you. It's called Can We Trust the Gospels? And there are about 10 copies on the bookstall at the back. You see, if Christ has not really been raised, and if these things didn't happen on the continuum of real space-time history, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Right? The Bible is not a book of devotional thoughts like the Hindu Vedas. No, the Bible is actual history. Now, Luke's gospel also contains a genealogy. Now, if you're a Bible reader, maybe you have noticed that Luke's gospel is quite different from the one in Matthew. And some people say, yeah, they're different. Yeah, they have different names, and therefore, this isn't reliable history. They just made this up or got their facts miscrossed. But that would be a simplistic misreading for the following reason. You see, Matthew's genealogy is structured differently in order to make a different point from a literary standpoint, and this is the way it is. Luke tracks back in time from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Matthew goes in the other direction. He tracks forward in time, starting from Abraham and going forward to Jesus. But there's another difference. Matthew's genealogy tracks the official throne succession. That is, it gives the royal line from king to king down to Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, tracks Joseph's actual physical lineage going back, not through King Solomon, but interestingly, through Solomon's brother, Nathan, also of the family of David. But somewhere down the line, the lines converged again. And that may account for the fact that Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, is listed with having two different fathers. So, uh, Matthew mentions one, Luke mentions a different one. It may be Joseph's mother's husband died childless and then she remarried and Joseph was the physical son of one and the legal heir of the other. The point is this, there are good explanations for the apparent contradictions between the two even if it's difficult to go back at this late date and reconstruct the history. And then one other thing about the genealogies. Um, several of the names have intentionally been skipped. Three of the kings, for example, 
were omitted. So it was not Matthew's aim to list each and every father of each and every son. You know, when it says the father of, it could also be translated the ancestor of, which explains verse 17 perfectly. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. History was headed somewhere. And to underscore the point, Matthew has artfully crafted the whole genealogy symbolically in three groups of 14. Why has he done that? Well, in the Hebrew language, letters, in addition to forming words, also form numbers. There is numerical value. When you add up the letters, the name David, according to this way of counting, equals, what do you think? 14. D, V, D. So, David is actually the 14th name in the list. And not only that, but each section of the genealogy of 14 highlights the identity of Jesus as the long-awaited son of David, the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. You see, you and I make plenty of promises, and sometimes we keep them. God is always true to his word. These promises were made to David 1,000 years. They were made to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. When the time had fully come, then God sent his son. So all of human history was orchestrated or sovereignly structured toward this one event. So the exile in Babylon, the return under Persia, the development of Greek philosophy, the rise of the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana and the unprecedented road system facilitating communication and travel, the suitability of Koine Greek as the lingua franca of the Greco-Roman world, the decree of Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. All of human history was structured leading to this culminating event at just the right time. You see, God works on his timetable and not on yours or mine. And so he calls you and me to be patient. He calls on us to endure affliction and trouble. He simply wants us to trust him. And he's shown himself, hasn't he? He's shown himself to be faithful. Even before Matthew's gospel was written, you know, some people understood exactly who Jesus was. But it wasn't the wealthy or the wise. On one occasion, two blind men were sitting by the roadside begging when they heard the crowds flocking to see Jesus. And once they figured out who it was, they began to cry out shamelessly, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And it created a scene because that title, son of David, was subversive. You see, the Romans ruthlessly squelched revolutionary claims of kingship. And so we read in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus 
stopped in his tracks and he called the men to him right along the way. And Bartimaeus and his friend were told by a bystander, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing aside his cloak, Bartimaeus, in his blindness, got up and ran to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Lord, he replied, I want to see. Mark tells us Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And it says, immediately they received their sight. And then what does it say they did? Then they followed him down the road. But not everyone. Eventually, Jesus was tried and condemned as a false messiah, a mere pretender to the throne of David, which is why when Jesus was crucified, attached to the cross above his head was written the charge, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But it was written in the international languages of Latin and Greek and Aramaic. Just as God had promised Abraham long before that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring, a global dominion, a worldwide dynasty began, not in a throne, but on a cross. And here indeed was the son of David and the son of Abraham. Here was the one who gave the supreme gift. He gave his life that day as a ransom for many bearing not only the wrath of the Jewish leadership, he bore the wrath of the living God. Jesus died there, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, pure, stainless, cleansed, forgiven. That is what he gave. And so now what about you? Let's pray. Lord, we give you honor this morning as the sovereign God. You are the one who structures human history. You are the one who controls all things. Lord, we see that in our own lives, even in the ways that we've come to know Christ. We acknowledge that you are Lord, and that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we call upon you. We lift up the cup of our salvation and pray that you would fill us still more. Lord, we call upon you as the compassionate Father, because we confess that we are needy, we are unworthy. Lord, we do see painful resemblances between us and many of the names in that genealogy. And we pray that we would press into Christ And that as we do so, we would be transformed more and more into his likeness and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.